Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. Taken from the news section of The National, the 4th of June 2021. Devolved nations tell the Prime Minister that power grab risks breakup of UK by Abby Garton. The UK government must treat the devolved nations as equals to secure recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, the First Minister and her counterpart in Wales have said. Following a four-nation summit chaired by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Nicola Sturgeon said nothing substantial had come from the meeting, and her counterpart, First Minister Mark Drayford of Wales, said they'd both made clear to Johnson a power grab and muscling in on devolved spending areas would not help. In fact, Welsh Labour leader Drakeford warned the Prime Minister he could cause the breakup of the UK if he decides to steal powers and steal money from the Welsh Government. Meanwhile, Sturgeon said, although there wasn't much substance to the discussion, she hopes there will be in future. Speaking to the BBC, she said, It was a frank discussion, you know. I, and indeed the First Minister of Wales, made clear that if we are to have good faith discussions about working together where we can, then that's not helped by the power grab and the UK government trying to muscle in on devolved spending. We then had a discussion that shared some experiences around COVID. But the proof of the pudding of all of this is going to be whether it has an impact, whether it changes any of the decisions of the UK government that impact on the devolved nations. Last night, the First Minister added, We are, of course, willing to work together on recovery from the pandemic, but the UK government needs to listen and act on key Scottish government concerns. I sought assurances that there would be no return to the cruel and damaging austerity of the past and that furlough and the £20 uplift in universal credit will be extended. The proof of the worth of this meeting depends on whether the UK government takes these issues seriously and responds accordingly. Asked if his and Nicola Sturgeon's recent election victories emboldened them to demand a fuller agenda for yesterday's rearranged coronavirus recovery summit, Mark Drayford said, We have refreshed mandates, that's for sure. And that's part of the reason the meeting was held when it was held in the aftermath of those elections. I did have to be clear as I could with the Prime Minister that if the UK government thinks that the best way to meld the United Kingdom together is to steal powers and steal money away from the Welsh Government then that is deeply, deeply counterproductive and is completely the opposite impact when we have to do things differently from now on. Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack, who was also at the summit, told the BBC the meeting was constructive and was about the whole UK approach to recovery from the pandemic. He also said the First Minister's assessment that nothing substantial had come from the meeting was a fair reflection. He said... 
it was about what we can learn and work, you know, learn from what's happening and how we can work better together, acknowledging that there are devolved administrations. There are also two governments in those devolved administrations. And it's incredibly important we work constructively together to improve the livelihoods of people. On the Scottish Government's request to extend the furlough scheme, Jack said the UK Government would have an open mind. He said, who knows where we'll be at the end of September. I hope we will have opened up all our businesses across the UK and we will be in a much better place. But if a variant comes and gets round the vaccine, it effectively puts us back to square one. It's understood the Prime Minister has committed to more regular Four Nation meetings to discuss issues around the pandemic recovery. By Abby Garton. From the news section of The National, Friday the 4th of June 2021. Michael Gove forced to abandon Four Nations Summit over Covid fears by Imar O'Toole. Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove had to abandon a meeting with Boris Johnson and leaders of the devolved nations yesterday after he was notified he may have come in contact with someone who had coronavirus on a trip to Portugal. The Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster had gone to Porto with his son to watch the Champions League final between Chelsea and Manchester City. Gove has been alerted through the NHS app that he may have been in contact with someone who had the virus. It's reported it's believed the contact happened on the flight home from Porto. The Cabinet Office confirmed Gove had been pinged by the app. A spokesman for Gove said the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster is participating in the daily contact testing programme after being advised to isolate today by NHS Test and Trace. He's followed COVID-19 regulations and guidance at all times and will continue to do so. Gove had been due to meet the First Ministers of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland with the Prime Minister in a bid to strengthen the union. Instead of self-isolating for 10 days, Gove will be able to take part in a pilot scheme for workplaces, including number 10, where he can instead be tested every day for a week. Nicola Sturgeon said that nothing substantial had come from the meeting, but Sturgeon and her counterpart in Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford, said they'd both made clear to Johnson a power grab and muscling in on devolved spending areas would not help. By Imar O'Toole. From the news section of the National, Friday the 4th of June 2021. Nicholas Sturgeon denies £600,000 has gone missing from SNP accounts by Laura Webster. Nicholas Sturgeon has had to tell people that no money has gone missing from SNP accounts after activists allege £600,000 raised for IndyRef2 has disappeared. The SNP leader was asked about the reports while speaking to STV and she insisted she had no concerns over her party's finances. Nearly £600,000 was crowdfunded by the party in a drive to raise cash for a future independence referendum campaign. Former SNP Treasurer Colin Beatty told donors in an email that the £593,501 in the referendum appeal fund was woven through the accounts and remains ring-fenced. Police Scotland are assessing a complaint made to them about the funds, while the Electoral Commission and the SNP say they're not aware of any investigation. The row over the cash has been brought to the forefront following two high-profile resignations from the party's governing body, the NEC. At the weekend, Douglas Chapman quit as Treasurer, announcing on Twitter, 
Despite having a resounding mandate from members to introduce more transparency into the party's finances, I have not received the support or financial information to carry out the fiduciary duties of National Treasure. Regretfully, I have resigned with immediate effect. This was followed days later by the resignation of Joanna Cherry QC from the NEC. She said on social media, I've resigned from the NEC of the SNP. A number of factors have prevented me from fulfilling the mandate party members gave me to improve transparency and scrutiny and to uphold the party's constitution. I won't be making any further comment at this stage. Last night, Sturgeon sought to reassure party members, telling STV she was not concerned about a party's financial situation. Money hasn't gone missing. All money goes through the SNP accounts independently and fully audited, and we don't hold separate accounts. We are under no legal requirement to do that. Our accounts are managed on a cash flow basis, but every penny we raise to support the campaign for independence will be spent on the campaign for independence. Deputy First Minister John Swinney was also asked about the cash earlier this week following Chapman's resignation. Asked if the £600,000 had been diverted elsewhere, he said, Not to my knowledge, no. He went on, I don't understand quite what's prompted this. The National Executive Committee has responsibility for scrutinising the party's finances. And in addition to that, accounts of the party are independently audited by external auditors and are submitted to the Electoral Commission for scrutiny by Laura Webster. This article is from The National, date 4th of June 2021, from the Culture section. Scientists model impact of massive tsunami which hit Scots coast 8,000 years ago by Gregor Young. A tsunami which hit Scotland around 8,200 years ago could devastate entire towns if it happened today, according to new research. The Storga tsunami, which affected 373 miles of coastline, was caused by the shifting of glacial and interglacial sediments on the coastal slopes at Storga along Norway's continental shelf in the Norwegian Sea, which displaced water and triggered the event. Researchers have now modelled the inland impact of the ancient wave, which is considered the largest natural catastrophe to happen in the UK in the last 11,000 years. The models show the wave reaching up to 98 feet in height, would have travelled up to 19 miles inland along the Scottish coast and would have devastated areas such as Montrose in Angus, a town of around 12,000 people with a coastal lagoon and nature reserve. The study was led by researchers at the Universities of Sheffield, St Andrews and York. Lead author Professor Mark Bateman from the University of Sheffield's Department of Geography said Although the Storga tsunami has been known about for years, this is the first time we've been able to model how far inland from Scotland's coastline the tsunami wave travelled by analysing the soil deposits left by the wave over 8,000 years ago. Though there is no similar threat from Norway today, the UK could still be at risk from flooding events from potential volcanic eruptions around the world 
such as those predicted in the Canary Islands. These would cause a similar resulting tsunami wave due to the amount of material that would be displaced by the volcano. These models give us a unique window into the past to see how the country was and could be affected again. Using sedimentology and luminescence to date tsunami sediment deposits at Maryton, Aberdeenshire, researchers were able to determine the age, number and relative power of the tsunami waves. The research is published in the journal Boreas. That article was by Gregor Young. From the news section of the National, Monday the 7th of June 2021. Court urged not to hand Craig Murray a deliberate death sentence of jail time by Martin Hannan. Nadira Murray, the wife of Craig Murray, has issued an emotional appeal to Judge Lady Dorian, saying that sending her husband to prison would be a death sentence. The former ambassador is today facing an eight-month jail sentence for contempt of court in connection with the Alex Salmon trial. Lady Dorian, Scotland's second most senior judge as Lord Justice Clark, and two other judges will hear Murray's lawyer, Roddy Dunlop QC, seek leave to appeal to the UK Supreme Court over his conviction for contempt. Lady Dorian ruled that items in his blog had breached a court order banning identification of the women complainers in the Salmon case. The former First Minister was acquitted on all charges last year. If the appeals upheld, Murray could stay free until the Supreme Court meets. If not, he will most likely be committed to prison on Wednesday of this week. Murray has denied identifying any of the women, and his wife has now written an open letter carried on Murray's blog. She wrote... I understand and fully support your decision of protecting sexual assault victims. However, I do not feel Craig has been judged fairly. Craig wouldn't even tell me the women's names or identities, or ever foul-mouth them during the trial when I asked about it. I have been living with Craig for almost two decades, and I know him as a gentle soul, a helpful human being, a kind partner and a loving dad to his four children. Him being under my watch, as his doctor stated his conditions are pulmonary hypertension, APS and atrial fibrillation, among other illnesses, I worry his health is not suitable for the prison, which you ignored and took away his basic human rights. Prison hospitals are not suitable for his type of serious illness. I believe you're sending him to a deliberate death sentence, knowing and ignoring his health conditions. I urge you to reconsider the sentence and allow Craig to be at home with his children who need him. By Martin Hannan. From the news section of The National, Monday the 7th of June 2021. Indy Ref 2, presiding officer, could have a key role in Holyrood bid by Richard Mason. The new presiding officer in the Scottish Parliament may have a key role to play in a bill that would give Holyrood the ability to legislate for a second independence referendum. Alison Johnson took on the presiding officer role last month and it could become crucial in deciding whether a Holyrood bill on IndyRef2 could be put before MSPs. Johnson was elected as a Scottish Greens MSP for the Lothian region, but gave up her party affiliation to take on the role of presiding officer. She has insisted she has not given any thought to whether such a bill falls within the Holyrood remit, saying she had already had a lot to get her head around since taking on her new role.
Unionists say the Scotland Act, which set up the Scottish Parliament, leaves constitutional issues reserved to Westminster. Pro-independence parties, the SNP and Greens, have a majority of 71 out of 129 MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. But there would need to be new legislation passed for MSPs to legally create a referendum on Scottish independence. Asked about the possible competence of such a bill, Johnson told the PA news agency that she would deal with that as and when it arises. She said at the point in time of any bill coming before her with a question of legislative competence, she was well briefed by expert advisers. And to be honest, she said, as you'll appreciate since the parliamentary elections, since the presiding officer elections, in fact, I've had a lot to get my head around. I am meeting and learning from people across the parliamentary state every day, just getting to meet all the group heads, people I've seen working across the building for a long time. I'm learning in depth, she said. I'm learning what it is they do, what they bring to the Parliament each and every day. The presiding officer has a legal duty to state whether or not they believe a bill would be within the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. Even if their view is that a bill is out with Holyrood's remit, a presiding officer has no veto and proposed legislation can still proceed, with MSPs voting to determine whether it should be passed at each stage. If a bill is then passed, it would be for the courts to decide whether it's lawful if it were challenged. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has already declared she wants to have a second independence referendum, though she says this would only be held after the immediate crisis caused by coronavirus is over. The Scottish Greens are also looking for IndyRev2 to take place within the next five years of this parliamentary term, but they agree with the SNP that it should be after the COVID pandemic has eased. Meanwhile, Ms Johnson stressed she was keen to ensure debates on this issue and others are conducted in a respectful and courteous manner. She said, we're leading the debate in Scotland, so I think it's important we set a good example and show you can robustly disagree with one another, but you can do it in a courteous manner by Richard Mason. From the news pages of The National, Monday the 7th, June 2021. Vaccinate high school pupils before it's too late, by Richard Mason. Professor Devi Sridhar has said that children over the age of 12 should get a COVID vaccine to ensure schools have a normal experience later in the year. The Chair of Global Public Health at the University of Edinburgh said that young people can still get chronically ill from COVID and the problem areas going forward will be in schools with large groups of unvaccinated children. Sridhar also pointed out that the AstraZeneca vaccine, which makes up the main supply of UK JAGs, cannot be used in young people, so these should be sent abroad to help in the global vaccine effort. She told Good Morning Britain that if we want schools to continue without disruption in the autumn and lift restrictions so children can have a normal experience, we need to vaccinate them. And if we wait and watch for the evidence, it'll be too late in the next few weeks. She said we have the supply. It's not a large amount. It's a couple of million doses to cover that population of 12 plus. And we can't use AstraZeneca, the main supply we have. In younger age groups, it shouldn't be used, so we should export AstraZeneca and help countries abroad send those doses, as well as focusing on our adolescents, to make sure they don't have another year disrupted, because that would be an absolute shame. We need to be serious about what that means, she said. Children can still get long COVID and can still be chronically ill. 
She said that given that we know children can transmit, where we're going to see problems going forward is not going to be in care homes. It's not going to be in hospitals. It's going to be in schools because this is where you're going to see large groups of unvaccinated kids together and we're going to have outbreaks. We might as well just do it. Roll it out in the summer. Get those kids covered so secondary schools can go back normally this autumn. I think it would be a huge shame for backing blended learning, she said, or having kids doing home learning in the autumn. The call to vaccinate young people has also been made by the UK government's former chief scientific advisor, Sir David King. King, who's chair of the Independent Sage Group, questioned whether the government was pressing ahead with a herd immunity policy among teenagers. He told Sky News that the Pfizer vaccine has already been given the green light in this country to over 12-year-olds. He said, I think we should run that programme forward quickly. But we're opening schools today and the government has said 12 to 18-year-olds no longer need to wear face masks at school. I don't think that was a wise thing to do, he said, and I do hope the government will rethink this in the light of the current figures. I believe that herd immunity was the policy from the beginning back in February or March last year. So have we returned to that now with a high vaccination level? By Richard Mason. This article is from The National, dates 7th of June 2021, from the Culture section. David Campbell, new memoir explores life of celebrated Scottish storyteller by Gregor Young. One of Scotland's most celebrated storytellers reflects on his love of words throughout the last eight decades of his life in a brand new memoir. Minstrel Heart, A Life and Story, explores David Campbell's childhood in Fraserburgh all the way through to his time as a producer with the BBC. It goes on to the conception of Fort Knox, the first ever multi-arts complex on the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, to present day in Edinburgh as a storyteller. The writer, broadcaster and poet recalls time spent in all corners of the world, from teaching in Scotland and Germany, to Israel with the BBC and Australia. Filled with poems, anecdotes and diary entries, Campbell reveals his life's story. The storyteller's repertoire of tales has ranged from ancient Celtic epics through stories of adventure and romance, of faith and love, to humorous anecdotes and quirky comic tales. And at its heart are the people he's met along the way, including Brendan Bracken, Duncan Williamson, Hugh McDermott, Delina McLennan, Norman McCaig and Sorley McLean amongst them. Campbell ties their stories into his with tales of love found, enjoyed and sometimes lost. Donald Smith, director of the Scottish Storytelling Centre and director of Traditional Arts and Culture Scotland, said, David's journey takes us through the story of Scotland's rebirth in all its subversive energy. This book is the poetry of memory combined with the art of storytelling. Meanwhile, Catherine Lockerbie said the book was a glorious chronicle and added that Campbell fills the pages with pure delight. Born in Edinburgh, he spent his childhood in the story and song-rich northeast of Scotland. After graduating with honours in English from the University of Edinburgh, he worked as a producer with BBC Radio Scotland for many years, devising, scripting 
and directing a wide variety of radio programmes. Campbell has toured worldwide with his repertoire of talks and stories. An online event celebrating the launch of the book takes place tomorrow via Zoom. That article was by Gregor Young. Taken from the news section of The National, Tuesday the 8th of June 2021. The EU is to scrap English as a working language and use French instead, by Laura Webster. The European Union is gearing up to replace its working language of English as a new country takes over the presidency next year. As the French government takes over the council of the EU presidency for six months in 2022, the country hopes to push its language in Brussels. It's the first French presidency of the council for more than 10 years. Officials are now working on plans to use a French-first approach to meetings and documents during the country's six-month presidency. A senior French diplomat said that while English is commonly practised within the bloc, the basis to express oneself in French remains fully in place in the EU institutions. He said we must enrich it and make it again so that the French language truly regains ground, and above that, the taste and pride of multilingualism. He went on, we will always ask the Commission to send us in French the letters it wishes to address to the French authorities, and if they fail to do so, we'll wait for the French version before sending it. Approximately 80% of officials within the Commission speak French as a first, second or third language, according to statistics. By Laura Webster. From the news section of The National, Tuesday the 8th of June 2021. Gordon Brown buried strength of independent support in post-election poll by Kathleen Nutt. The SNP has accused Gordon Brown of burying support for independence in a poll carried out days after the Scottish Parliament elections. The survey commissioned by the former Prime Minister asked voters to put themselves on a scale of support for independence from 0 to 10, with 10 being strongly in favour while 0 being strongly against. It found that 55% of respondents put themselves on the scale from 6 to 10, while 38% put themselves on 0 to 4, suggesting that they were veering against independence. 8% of those polled opted for the middle option of five, suggesting they were undecided. However, the SNP says this information on the sliding scale and the strength of support for independence was only available on page 91 of the polling information, though a spokesperson for Brown said it was first slide to appear on the briefing of the poll analysis. The SNP also says that when Brown commented on the poll, he took those who put themselves on the scale from two to eight That's 40% as the middle option, despite Level 8 suggesting support for independence. Brown then told the media that this 40% formed Middle Scotland, with a group key to deciding the nation's future in or out of the UK. While the poll did have a standard should Scotland be an independent country question, which came out at 50% on a binary presentation, it only included 714 responses leaving a large 28% as don't know or unlikely to vote. SNP Deputy Leader at Westminster, Kirsten Oswald MP, said these results are heartening and show the strength of potential support independence has gathered over the past two years. The poll was conducted by James Canasgurium's Stack Data, 
a trading brand of Hanbury Strategy, which is conducted on published polling for the UK government and who regularly meets with Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove. Tommy Shepherd, the SNP MP, has previously battled to get the polling results from the Cabinet Office under Freedom of Information legislation. Oswald said it's also interesting that Mr Brown appears to be employing the same pollsters as Boris Johnson's government. It's clear independence is the only way to keep Scotland safe from repeated and unwanted Tory government and the long-term damage of austerity cuts, Brexit and power grabs. The poll was carried out by stack data for Brown's Our Scottish Future think tank, with 990 Scots polled between May 7th and 8th. Eddie Barnes of Our Scottish Future said a polling question on how people might vote on independence made up the very first slide of the briefing, issued to the media two weeks ago. The figures cited by the SNP as being buried are in the second slide of the briefing and can be reached by adding up. We hope our polling and analysis will contribute to a deeper and more meaningful debate about our country's future over the coming years. By Kathleen Nutt. Taken from the news section of The National, Tuesday the 8th of June 2021. Scottish Tory councillor calls for Scotland to be partitioned after yes vote by the Duca. In the wake of the row over Boris Johnson's government telling civil servants and presumably their own ministers and MPs to stop talking about the four nations of the UK, the National can today reveal that some Scots Tories and their supporters are calling for the partition of Scotland, possibly into various nations. They're led by Councillor Andrew Wood, who defected from the Scottish National Party to sit as an independent and then joined the Scottish Conservatives last year. After 20 years of strongly fighting for an independent Scotland, that's his words in the press, he had a Damascene conversion and is now trying to out-Tory the Tories. Funnily enough, all those Tories who want SNP and other politicians who defect to other parties to resign their seats quietly forget to mention the case of Councillor Wood. Or perhaps they don't want to be associated with a member from Mid and Upper Nidsdale at all after this letter to the DNG Media Group. He wrote, I do worry that the claim for such a referendum by Nicola Sturgeon is arguably based on the democratic right of the Scottish people and would challenge that if this is the base for holding yet another referendum. Surely the democratic right of the people of the south of Scotland, Orkney and Shetland should equally be heard as all three parts of Scotland and the UK rejected the SNP. With a very strong Conservative blue line across the south of Scotland, I can see no reason if this is replicated at such a referendum on independence that the Scottish border is moved north to accommodate the democratic principles set out by the SNP and present Scottish Government. Likewise, with Orkney and Shetland clearly supporting the Liberals, surely they also have a democratic right to stay in the UK or go independent. So that's a truncated Scotland and possibly six nations in the UK. It seems nuts. He received support on the letters page from NJ Cameron of Lockerbie, who said, It's a great feeling looking at maps of Scotland and seeing the large blue area going from Stranraer in the west to Berwick in the east makes me proud to be British. If in the future anyone tries to break us away, we can always move the border a good bit further north. They want partition, just like Ireland a hundred years ago, said the Duker's southern source. 
who said, like Edward Carson in Ireland, they seem also to be prepared to gerrymander the boundaries of the south of Scotland to suit their aims, ignoring the majority across the south of Scotland electoral region for pro-independence parties. By the Duco. Recorded from the National on the 8th of June 2021. From the Culture section. First book published by new printing outfit headquartered in Glasgow and Berlin. By Martin Hannan. Last month, The National revealed that a street art installation in Glasgow's West Graham Street was a collaborative work by Glasgow-born, Los Angeles-based visual artist Roderick Abercrombie-Smith and New York wordsmith Sam Wagner. Now we can reveal that Smith and Wagner have collaborated to produce the first book of a new publishing imprint that is based in both Glasgow and Berlin. Prolific writer and editor Neil Baxter and graphic designer John Jardin have teamed up to form Baxter Jardine and their new first book is Some Kind of Angel, that The Little Book of Bleak, featuring the extraordinary artworks of Smith and the darkly comic musings of Wagner. Having been held up by the coronavirus pandemic, the book is receiving its public launch today and The National is one of the few media outlets to have been sent a review copy. STV broadcaster Bernard Ponzobi was one of the first people to read the book and is adamant about its quality. Brilliant, the cleverest and funniest book I've read in years. It is certainly bleak in parts, but there is a rich vein of ironic humour throughout, presumably the product of Wagner being a New York copywriter. The black and white cartoon style drawings by Smith are well done wonderful. One page featured a shore scene captioned pre-tidal wave, and another a quiet lovely Don Kyoto figure. It's surprising to learn that Smith is not a trained artist. He is a screenwriter by trade, and one of his early jobs was on Still Game. Some Kind of Angel is both unsettling and inspiring, and Baxter has already been surprised by its reception prior to today's public launch. He said, We put a few copies in a bookshop in Glasgow, and while I was expecting it would appeal to an older age group, it's actually younger people who have been liking it. It seems to be tapping into the zeitgeist. That article was by Martin Hannan, recorded from the National on the 8th of June 2021, from the Culture section, Scots Islanders to star in Facebook documentary on sustainable communities, by Craig Meehan. A Scottish group is to feature in a brand new series of documentaries by Facebook that celebrates some of Europe's most sustainable communities. The Rethinkers series consists of 11 short films across eight countries, featuring communities across Europe that are pulling together to combat climate change and reappraising their approach to their impact on the planet. This series features communities from Scotland, Sweden, Denmark, Poland, Ireland, Germany, Netherlands and Belgium that are driving local initiatives and changing behaviours for a greener future. The Scots group featured in the film series is Rasse Community Renewables, based on the Isle of Skye, an organisation dedicated to bringing sustainable energy solutions to the Isle of Rassi and its residents. The group's current project, co-founded by Ross Camilli, Ross Gillies and Rosie McLeod when they were teenagers, involves developing two micro-hydro schemes, resulting in an annual CO2 savings of 127 tonnes. Now in their 20s, they have raised more than £600,000 to fund their dream of a more sustainable future for Rassi through their hydro plant. Ross Camilli, director of Rassi Community Renewables, said, We are delighted to be involved in the Rethinker series and share our journey 
towards bringing sustainable energy to our community on the Isle of Rasui. Through Facebook groups, we were not only able to share our project within our own community, but also much more by allowing people across the globe that want to support initiatives like ours to get involved. For such a small community, this was crucial in making this great project possible. Other groups featured as part of the series include Oz Om Havit, a volunteer organisation in Denmark, clearing the seabed from waste using divers and paddleboarders, and Green Swap, Amsterdam's first 100% carbon neutral online grocery. Electro Choppers also feature a group of chopper motorbike enthusiasts from Germany whose bikes have been modified to run off electric. Facebook say the series launches as Europe grapples with the need to transform its economy and society to put it on a more sustainable path while trying to recover from the COVID pandemic. Eva Maria Kirschscheiper, Facebook's Public Affairs Director for Sustainability in Europe, said The climate crisis is real, a threat that we face and that requires a great collaborative effort in order to combat. The new Rethinker series shines a light on those who are inspiring many with their sustainable approach through an active and engaged Facebook group, and the impact that each group has had on its local community is truly admirable. These videos show how coming together on Facebook's platform can engage others to have a positive impact when it comes to sustainability. Facebook is committed to playing its part in encouraging true action to address the climate crisis, which is why we have pledged to take steps towards reducing our emissions and set a goal to reach net zero for the company's value chain by 2030. You can view the full Rethinkers film series at facebook.com forward slash sustainability. That article was by Craig Meakin. From the news pages of The National, dated Wednesday the 9th of June 2021. Andrew Lloyd Webber willing to risk arrest by opening theatres on June 21st. By Laura Webster. Andrew Lloyd Webber has said he's determined to open his theatres on June 21st and is prepared to be arrested if authorities try to intervene. The composer told the Daily Telegraph he may have to sell his six West End venues if the UK government does not relax its restrictions in England on so-called Freedom Day. He also revealed he's already remortgaged his London home. Many theatres have remained closed despite easing of COVID-19 restrictions and it's not financially viable for them to open with reduced capacities. Lloyd Webber is preparing for a production of Cinderella, which is scheduled to open for previews on June 25th, ahead of its world premiere in July. He said, we're going to open come hell or high water, and asked what he would do if the UK government postponed lifting lockdown. He said, we'll say come to the theatre and arrest us. England's June 21st date is in doubt due to concerns over the impact of COVID-19 variants. But Lord Lloyd Webber said scientific evidence shows theatres are completely safe and do not cause outbreaks. He added that if the government ignored their own signs, he said they would have the mother of all legal cases against them. And if Cinderella couldn't open, we would go, look, either we go to law about it or you'll have to compensate us. Speaking on Sky News, Community Secretary Robert Jenrick said he completely sympathised when asked about the composer saying he would risk arrest in order to fully reopen his theatres. He said, we want to get them open, we're doing pilots, we want to get those theatres open so great new productions like Cinderella can open. That was Jenrick speaking to presenter Kay Burley. 
He then said, I know that people are desperate to go to them. Tickets are selling fast for all these productions because people have been away too long. But you just have got a few more days to wait until the judgment that the Prime Minister is going to make on the basis of the data. When asked if Lord Lloyd Webber should be arrested if he does open theatres without restrictions relaxing, Jenrick said, we all have to abide by the rules. By Laura Webster. From the news section of The National. Wednesday the 9th of June 2021. Independence activists to go on trial over organisation of yes marches by Martin Hannan. Independence activist Gary Kelly is to stand trial at Aberdeen Sheriff Court later this year on two charges. The case arises from the All Under One Banner, that's the AUOB, the march in the city in August 2019, for which he was named the organiser. Kelly, who has since left AUOB to co-found Yes to Indy, is the second person to face charges over marches and rallies for independence. Manny Singh was jailed for 72 days for his part in the organisation of the march in Glasgow on May 2019. In Aberdeen, where thousands took part in the march, Kelly's facing two charges under Section 651C of the Civic Government Scotland Act 1982, which concern a person who holds a procession in public otherwise than in accordance with a condition imposed by an order. It's alleged that Kelly did not acquire a temporary traffic regulation order and seek a fully approved traffic management company road closure to be in place during the procession. The second charge is that he did not have proper public liability insurance in place, which was reported to be a condition of the March approval granted by Aberdeen City Council for August 19, 2019. The council also imposed a change of route at the last minute, but independent supporters were still able to march down Union Street in the city centre. The march passed peacefully and there were no arrests. Since that march, Kelly, 46, has become the father of a child. A crowdfunder was started to help pay for his legal expenses, but with the trial coming more than two years after the march, Kelly is reported to be running out of money. He told The National he will continue to plead not guilty and will cite the right to protest as guaranteed in the European Convention on Human Rights. By Martin Hannan. From the news section of The National, Wednesday the 9th of June 2021. Cruise ship passengers barred from disembarking in Scotland due to Covid fears by Angus Cochrane. Passengers on a cruise ship sailing round Britain have been barred from entering Scotland when the ship docks in Greenock due to COVID-19 rules. The MSC Virtuosa left Liverpool on Tuesday and was due to dock at Greenock today at about 9.30am, departing at 8pm this evening. The domestic seven-night cruise is then due to drop anchor at Belfast, Southampton and the Isle of Portland before returning to Greenock and then a final stop at Liverpool the following day. However, the Scottish Passenger Agents Association, the professional body for travel agents and the sector in Scotland, has seen a copy of an email sent to current passengers by the cruise operator. It says, due to the latest Scottish Government COVID-19 restrictions and regulations, we're sorry to inform you that the port call of Greenock has been cancelled. No guests are allowed to embark or disembark. This decision has been made by the Scottish Government and is out of our control. 
Scottish passengers were due to join the cruise in Greenock, and the SPAA anticipated a third of those currently on board were expected to go ashore for excursions. Michelle Lister, who works for Glasgow-based Glen Travel, is one of those who boarded the ship in Liverpool and has expressed her disappointment at not being allowed into Greenock. She said she was expecting to go into Greenock tomorrow morning for the full day and were not allowed to go into my own country, she says, which is really disappointing. The captain made an announcement over the tannoy and said that due to the latest government announcement, we were not going to be allowed to disembark in Greenock and we were going to remain in Liverpool one more night. That's about half a dozen people I'm aware of on board that are Scottish and they want to show off to the English customers what Scotland's all about. They want to spend their money in the area as well, which is badly needed. The majority of Scotland's in level two just now. I don't see why we're not allowed to go into our country. It's safer on board here than it is to walk about the streets in Glasgow. We have to do two PCR tests to get on board the ship. A cruise is my favourite holiday. It's safer for me to be on here and make sure I'm travelling with people that are COVID-free because you could be walking down the street and it can be transmitted by people walking past you. Joanne Dewey, SPAA president, said we're now facing the situation where Scottish passengers who joined the cruise in Liverpool are barred from setting foot in their own country. The SPAA has been asking for clarity on the situation for this particular cruise ship since last week. And all we've received so far is an indication that cruisers may only restart when all of Scotland's in Level 1. Inverclyde itself is currently in Level 1. The Scottish Government has effectively closed the country's borders to anything other than road travel. The irony is that any of these passengers can get in a car and drive from Southampton to Inverclyde with no testing, border control or vaccinations. We as travel agents are utterly devastated. The Scottish Government is not even paying lip service now to working with the travel sector to save Scottish travel. A Scottish Government spokesman said, We fully understand the impact of the current restrictions on domestic cruises. We explained our concerns about the transmission risks posed by cruise vessels in an update to industry on May 24th. Following extensive engagement with stakeholders, we've now confirmed domestic cruises can restart when all of Scotland reaches level one. Affected passengers should contact the operator for further information regarding their trip. By Angus Cochran. Recorded from the National on the 9th of June 2021. From the Culture section. BBC journalist shares bizarre handwritten letter from viewer after Marshall by Laura Webster. They say being a journalist isn't as glamorous as it looks, and if Chris Mason's latest experience is anything to go by, that rule also applies to the fan mail. The BBC News political correspondent and newscast host shared a picture of a bizarre letter sent to him by an Andrew Marshall viewer with some interesting opinions. Dear Chris, the anonymous writer said, Turning up an Andrew Marr in an open shirt is not cool. Nor is trying to hide your balding hair brushing it forward in such a ridiculous way. Oh, and please learn how to pronounce your R's. Mason shared the picture jokily with the comment, just basking in the warm glow of fan mail this morning. Social media users were perplexed by the correspondence. Imagine getting up in the morning and thinking, yes, it will be a good use of my time to write and send this letter, said one commenter. How empty would your life have to be? Can we at least just appreciate that this seems to have been written with a fountain pen on decent paper, added Peter C. Barnes. Content aside, I like the handwriting, added another. 
There were encouraging messages for Mason, including from SNP MP John Nicholson. Before Twitter trolls had to post letters, he recalled. It required more commitment, certainly, but as now they were often anonymous, and the angrier they got about declining standards, the worse their spelling and confusion over plural and possessive. Ridiculous. Keep on being you. It just goes to show journalists have received nasty messages since long before the internet came to be. That article was by Laura Webster, recorded from The National on the 9th of June 2021. From the Culture section, Parents Furious as Driver Stops for Toilet Trip in School Car Park, by Laura Webster. A parent living in the Highlands has hit out at the lack of disrespect shown by visitors after a campervan driver used a primary school car park full of parents to stop for a toilet trip in the bushes. Mum of two, Stacey French, lives in Dor, close to Loch Ness, and is frustrated with the mess being brought by motorhomes to the area. The National recently reported on an artist's concerns over tourists going to the toilet on the famous Morar Beach, close to Arasig, over the bank holiday weekend. She reported shocking scenes in the scenic coastal villages, with visitors burning grasslands and stealing part of crofters' fences to start fires. French was waiting at Alduri Primary School when a campervan entered the car park, Two men got out of the vehicle and relieved themselves on the grounds. One man used an area designed for pupils to learn about nature. French said she had encountered problems with camper vans in the area, but this incident left her in total shock. The first guy got out and ran up to the bank into the land that was gifted to the school by another parent's family and is now used by the children to learn about nature, she recalled. The other guy ran behind a car and a few bushes and literally went against a joiner's shed. It's a place of work. There are even signs there to say so. When I challenged the guy, he said he was bursting. I was just astonished. There's a toilet on board, but he said he would have to pay extra to the hire company if he used it. It's a sheer lack of respect for those who, of us who live here, just to save a bit of money. There have long been complaints about over-tourism in the Highlands, with residents reporting that the rural infrastructure can't cope with the traffic. However, one campervan owner said visitors are targeted unfairly after someone left a note in his van telling him not to leave his wastewater in Gearlock, he insisted he was a responsible tourist. I found this targeted encounter creepy and accusatory, he told the Press and Journal. Please stop this passive vigilante behaviour of innocent tourists. That article was by Laura Webster. The National, recorded on Thursday 10th of June 2021. News. G7 Cornwall. Joe Biden to take on Johnson over Northern Ireland's Brexit arrangements by Laura Webster, Digital Audience and Content Editor. US President Joe Biden will tell Boris Johnson not to let the row over Northern Ireland's Brexit arrangements put the Good Friday Agreement at risk when the pair meet later today. In the US President's first overseas visit, Aides said he will stress the need to stand behind the Northern Ireland Protocol, the element of the Brexit deal which has triggered a UK-EU dispute. The issue has threatened to overshadow the Prime Minister's first meeting with the President and his hosting of the G7 summit, which begins tomorrow in Cornwall. Aside from Brexit, Johnson and Biden will work on efforts to resume transatlantic travel and agree a new Atlantic Charter focused on challenges including climate change and security. Biden's close interest in issues affecting Ireland will mean that the dispute over the protocol will feature heavily in discussions with the UK and European Union over the coming days of intense diplomatic activity in Cornwall. The Times reported that the President, who is intensely proud of his Irish roots, 
took the extraordinary step of ordering the United States' most senior diplomat in London, Yael Lempert, to deliver a demarche, a formal protest, in a meeting with Brexit Minister Lord Frost on June 3. The newspaper reported that UK government minutes of the meeting said Lempert implied that the UK had been inflaming the rhetoric by asking if he would keep it cool. The US charge d'affaires indicated that if Johnson accepted demands to follow EU rules and agricultural standards, Biden would ensure that it would not negatively affect the chances of reaching a US-UK free trade deal. Talks between Brexit Minister Lord Frost and the European Commission's Maros Sevkovic yesterday failed to make a breakthrough in the protocol. The EU has threatened to launch a trade war against Britain if it fails to implement checks on goods entering Northern Ireland under the terms of the Brexit divorce settlement which Johnson signed. Lord Frost refused to rule out the prospect that the UK could unilaterally delay imposing checks on British-made sausages and other chilled meats due to come into force at the end of the month. The protocol effectively keeps Northern Ireland in the European single market for goods in order to avoid a hard border with Ireland, meaning a trade barrier in the Irish Sea for goods crossing from Britain. Biden's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters in Air Force One, President Biden has been crystal clear about his rock-solid belief in the Good Friday Agreement as the foundation for peaceful coexistence in Northern Ireland. That agreement must be protected, and any steps that imperil or undermine it will not be welcomed by the United States. Asked whether Johnson's stance was imperiling the peace deal, Sullivan said, I'm not going to characterise that at this point. I'm only going to say that President Biden is going to make statements in principle on this front. He's not issuing threats or ultimatums. He's going to simply convey his deep-seated belief that we need to stand behind and protect this protocol. Johnson told reporters yesterday that resolving the dispute with Brussels was easily doable and what we would want to do is make sure that we can have a solution that guarantees the peace process, protects the peace process, but also guarantees the economic and territorial integrity of the whole United Kingdom. By Laura Webster The National, recorded on Thursday 10th of June 2021 News Police rule out action against Scottish Green leaders over Covid breach by Angus Cochran, multimedia journalist. The police will not be taking further action against Scottish Green chiefs after they breached coronavirus rules in an Edinburgh pub. Co-leaders Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater were photographed with colleague Ross Greer and another man in Browns and George Street in Edinburgh last month. Level 2 restrictions state only three households are allowed to be together in a hospitality or domestic setting. Harvey, who is a resident of Glasgow, which was under Level 3 restrictions, is allowed to travel for work, but should not have been inside the hospitality premises. The party leaders have both since apologised and said it was an honest mistake. A Police Scotland spokeswoman commented, We're aware that the individuals involved have apologised for their mistake. We have assessed the situation and we are not taking any further action in relation to this matter. We would remind everyone that the requirement to follow the restrictions which are in place to help suppress the spread of coronavirus. In an earlier statement, Harvey and Slater said, We attended a work-related meeting in a venue in central Edinburgh on Tuesday evening, May 25, where the three-household limit was not upheld. This was an honest mistake. We're kicking ourselves and apologise unreservedly. By Angus Cochrane. From the National, Thursday the 10th of June 2021, from the comment section, David Pratt As foreign soldiers leave Afghanistan, the Taliban prepares. 
This is a comment piece by David Pratt, Foreign Affairs Editor. The last time I was in the Afghan capital Kabul, I had a brief telephone chat with Taliban spokesman Zabahullah Mujahid. During our conversation, the Islamist group's ever-available PR man was at pains to stress how his fellow Taliban would never give up their fight until all foreign troops have left Afghan soil. That moment is now rapidly approaching, but already the redoubtable Taliban messenger Mr Zabihullah has other points he feels must be rammed home. Just these past days, in an interview with Foreign Policy magazine, he was at pains to stress how even with foreign troops gone, the insurgents will continue to fight the established what he calls an Islamic government. Women will be forced to wear the hijab or burqa, Zabahullah insisted, and the sexes will be clearly segregated, while freedom of expression and speech will simply become memories. In other words, it will be back to the business as usual should the Taliban once again be in control, and with every day that passes, that looks ever more likely. What the Taliban say and what they do, of course, don't always match up. Only yesterday, they were strongly denying that they carried out the killing of 10 Afghans working for the Scotland-based demining agency, the Halo Trust. Their denial of involvement in the killings would appear to have borne out by the Halo Trust CEO, James Cowan, who told the BBC that the local Taliban came to our rescue and scared the assailants off. Others are less convinced that the masked men had gunned down the aid workers were not in some way connected to the Taliban. Whatever the truth behind the attack, few Afghans doubt the Taliban will be so accommodating should they sweep once again to power in the wake of the US and NATO troop withdrawal that is currently underway. Those Afghans who worked with foreign forces will be safe, the Taliban insist, providing the show remorse for their past actions. But try telling that to the countless interpreters, cooks and drivers, among others currently looking to flee the country, while Western embassies in the UK among them, albeit reluctantly, process thousands of visa applications. Try telling it also to the Afghan women who have seen their rights improve since the Taliban were ousted. The progress made in the women's rights is one of the biggest successes of the last 20 years in Afghanistan, but many now fear a return of darker times. Some years ago, in the week of the Taliban's ouster, I paid a visit to Kabul's Ghazi football stadium where the Islamist extremists, who banned all sport, found another use for the ground. In what had been the, sh- the stadium's dressing rooms, I was shown how they had, they had been adapted to hold prisoners ready for punishment or execution before the crowd of citizens, who were forcibly herded into the stands and terraces and made to watch. I was led down the tunnel leading to the pitch where sometimes cowering women in a pale blue, all enveloping burkas, were brought into the stadium to be either stoned or shot dead at Point Blank Range. Their crimes were usually spurious accusations of adultery under a regime where 80% of marriages were forced. Even today, few ordinary Afghans like to be near the stadium after dark, believing that the souls of the victims still roam the sprawling grounds. Today, the Taliban are content to offer up conflicting messages over how women will be treated should they return to power. Holz Abihullah Mujahid talks of segregating the sexes and forcing women to wear the hijab or burqa, 
others within the ranks so that women's rights will be protected. But ask most Afghan women in Kabul about such things and they will tell you if their sister's been targeted or still been gunned down in the streets while going to work or school. And, as if it were not enough to be targeted as a woman, then tried being female and from one of the country's ethnic minorities, like the Hazara community, long persecuted by the Taliban, who themselves belong to Afghanistan's major ethnic, majority ethnic Pashtun group. Just last month, a bombing in one of Kabul's Hazara neighbourhoods killed 85 people, with most of the victims being schoolgirls aged between 13 and 18 years old. Distrustful of the Afghan government and the Taliban, many of Afghanistan's minority groups, particularly the Hazaras, view the presence of foreign forces as their last line of defence. In the coming weeks and months, that defence will be dwindling, leaving many Hazaras fearing what lies in store for them. This September will mark exactly 20 years since Al-Qaeda's 9-11 attacks on America, planned and directed from Afghanistan, that brought in the US-led coalition that removed the Taliban from power and temporarily drove out Al-Qaeda. This week it was revealed that Britain's war in Afghanistan cost the taxpayer £22.2 billion, and this only accounts for the cash from a specific Whitehall pot for the conflict. In America's case, it's cost the taxpayer there close to a staggering US dollar one trillion. All this money too before the other costs in terms of the thousands of lives of the service personnel from the US, UK and other countries. Do you think it was worth it? I'm often asked. The answer must be a resounding no, not least given that it means ordinary Afghans above all who have sacrificed and continue to do so. Whatever one thinks is the rights or wrongs of having foreign troops in Afghanistan in the first place, once they are gone, the Taliban will continue to moving into the ascendancy, adding more towns and cities to those that fall under their control almost daily now. Some people reading this might perhaps say rather glibly, well, so be it, at least Afghans will be sorting it out for themselves. I understand that argument, and, on a certain level, it's difficult to refute. But it doesn't take into account what comes next for these Afghans, mainly women and ethnic minorities, who will bear the brunt of the Taliban's return to power. Those ordinary, decent Afghans that I've met over the years deserve better after all they have been through. Afghan women especially hope that the world will not abandon and forget them again. It's up to all of us, in whatever way we can, to make sure that their fate is not yet not left yet again in the hands of the Taliban. And that was a comment piece by David Pratt. From the National, Thursday the 10th of June 2021, from the comment section, Leslie Riddock, Feeble Keir Starmer is enabling habitual Tory rule breakers. By Leslie Riddock, columnist. Clearly, I live in a parallel universe. Michael Gove hit the headlines yesterday when the High Court ruled he broke the law by awarding a contract to former associates without going to tender. In my world, that's pretty serious. The court didn't blame his erstwhile pal Dom, though that's what panicking Tories are now trying to suggest. 
It wasn't an underling. It wasn't a big boy who did this and ran away. It was the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and Minister for the Cabinet Office, Michael Gove. He broke the law. That kind of verdict would have prompted Gove to quit back in the days when the Cabinet Ministers did such things, or at the very least allowed demands for a resignation inquiry or both. And news of this verdict broke just at the right time for maximum effect, just before Prime Minister's questions. But the Mother of Parliaments is definitely another world. When PMQs finally got going yesterday, the High Court's damning verdict on Michael Gove didn't get a single mention. Instead, Keir Starmer focused his questions with synthetic outrage on education funding in England. Boris Johnson's response was entirely predictable and utterly inconsequential. I can't recall a word either man said. What a wasted opportunity. Labour had the debate on education schedule for yesterday afternoon and financing the recovery of pupils is certainly important. But more important than scouring the Tories over dodgy procurement practice? More important than highlighting taxpayers' money being chucked to cronies again? More important than taking a pop at Michael Gove? Was the court's judgement just a bit too last minute for the slow-moving opposition that prefers its own carefully laid plans? Is law-breaking now so unremarkable at Westminster that the leader of the opposition won't throw a deeply unmemorable question aside to hold the UK government to account, even though that is his job? Or does the demand for an inquiry or resignation after evidence of law-breaking by ministers happen only in that parallel universe called Scotland? Whatever, the Labour leader opted to appear choreographed when he needed to be spontaneous. Again. Perhaps that's why, 14 months into the job, his approval ratings are as low as Jeremy Corbyn's at the same point. Except Starmer hasn't got the media and party colleagues on his back at the same time. Maybe, though, the ruling wasn't as significant as it sounds. After all, What's a backhanded 560k government contract in the great scheme of things? I'll tell you what it is. Proof. Proof that senior members of the British government habitually break the rules and then try to cover their tracks. Proof that decades old governance standards at Westminster have been completely abandoned. And, according to Joe Mom of the Good Law Project, proof that this is not government for the public good this government for the good friends of the Conservative Party. Of course, Mr Mom has just proved what yeses have long suspected. But suspicion is one thing, proof is another. So we should thank the doggedness of Peter Georgian, Investigations Editor of Open Democracy, who spent months tracking the procurement information down. Journalist David Cohen and the Good Law Project we spent months to crowdfund where fully funded law agencies fear to tread. One tiny corner of the government's elaborate crony contact structure now sits fully exposed. And whilst the court could only find apparent bias, so no jail for Gove, it did prove preferential access exists for ministerial pals. So, what will happen? Independent supporters already know the answer. Nothing. It feels pointless to even ask. And that's a terrible irony. 
the more the British government has found to have broken the law, the less attention and condemnation their law-breaking seems to generate. And boy have they got form. In February, the High Court ruled that Matt Hancock acted unlawfully by failing to reveal details of contracts signed during the coronavirus pandemic. It transpired that companies referred by ministers' offices, MPs, peers or health chiefs were fast-tracked and thus 10 times more likely to win a contract. The National Audit Office said that more than half of the £18 billion spent on pandemic-related contracts was awarded without competitive tender. Still so shocking. But what happened? Nothing. That same month, the Court of Appeal ruled that the Home Office's scandalously high fee of £1,000 for children to register as British citizens was unlawful. What happened? Nothing. Last November, Home Secretary Priti Patel was found to have bullied civil servants by the Prime Minister's independent advisor to the Ministerial Code, Dr Alex Allen. Something did happen. He quit. Last June, the Appeal Court ruled that Richard Universal Credit Payment Rules were irrational and unlawful. Nothing happened. And, last May, a judge ruled that the English Housing Secretary Robert Jendrick Approval of a Conservative Donors Building Project at the Isle of Dogs was unlawful. So it's not just Hancock and Gove. It's not just this year. It's not just this once. And it's not just about Covid contracts. Boris doesn't give a fig about the rule of law. He broke it off a proroguing parliament. He flitted with breaking international law for Northern Ireland protocol. And the resulting bodge is now so unworkable there's talk of goods from Ireland facing checks to enter mainland EU, despite Ireland being a full EU member. The situation is outrageous, but it's pointless to complain, because that's how the UK rolls, old boy. Rules are for losers. Laws are for little people and asylum seekers. Boris and his team are masters of distraction, and no outrage ever sticks around long enough to hit Boris where it hurts, in the polls. No wonder many folks simply switch off. But this is too serious a revelation to be shrugged off with a what did you expect response? Opting to express outrage at the loss of democratic function in Westminster does not make you a slack-jawed, naive sucker. In a functional democracy with a proper separation of powers, we see several criminal investigations happening now over the Covid contracts for Trump's scandal. There are none. That has to matter. We have to keep proofing Westminster behaviour against decent human democracy so we don't lose our own standards, expectations and moral compass in the journey to independence. But in the end, what will finally defeat the Tories is not legal action or political reaction from Her Majesty's woefully unresponsive official opposition. It's the court of public opinion in Scotland. So stay angry. Independence can't come fast enough. And that was a comment piece by Leslie Riddich. Recorded from the National on the 10th of June 2021. From the Culture section. Devolved nations should use borders to take lead in Covid battle. By Tasmina Ahmed Sikh. The new Delta coronavirus variant is now doubling every eight days in England and fast becoming the dominant strain in Scotland. 
I say new, but it was first identified in India on March 24th. Unfortunately, the UK government prevaricated, waiting a month until April 23rd to be exact, to put India on the red travel list. It became the dominant strain south of the border, which means, given the loosening of restrictions, that is now being mirrored in Scotland. We are into a third wave of the pandemic. That is all thanks to the refusal of the UK's most famous libertarian, Boris Johnson, to introduce effective and far-reaching border controls. Instead, we've had a kind of Covid-roulette border policy, shutting the borders to those countries where the Beta and Gamma variants were spreading, but keeping them open to other countries. The flaw in this policy is that we don't have a crystal ball telling us where the next variant would come from. We have no way of predicting this, or that the Delta variant would originate in India. Now there is fresh concern on a Beta variant from Nepal. Are our borders still to be open to travellers from this country? I'm reminded of Dr Michael Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization, who warned, right at the get-go of this horrendous pandemic, that the best course of action is speed when it comes to a global virus. Prevaricate at your peril. Better to throw everything at a situation, to overact rather than delay like the UK government. It is in that fashion you stay ahead of the viral curve and save lives. The WHO has not had a good crisis. However, that may be due to the enormity of the challenge and the paucity of resources. However, Ryan knows what he is talking about and the reality is that a year from on from this essential and informed advice, we are still dragging our heels on reaction to new strains of this deadly virus. In Delta's case, the best science estimates it could be almost 50% more transmissible than the Kent or Alpha variant we battled last year. To make matters worse, we are still unsure about the full effectiveness of at least some of the vaccines against Delta, with it being less vulnerable to a single dose, and possibly also less effective after a few months in older and vulnerable groups who have been given two doses. We are living through a terrifying global experiment with an unstable and an unempathetic leader at the helm. I wouldn't put Boris Johnson in charge of washing petri dishes or turning off lab boons and burners, never mind guiding us with the scientific acumen and effective management needed to get us out of the other end of a global pandemic. The death toll in the UK says it all about the human coast of Boris's blundering. So what more can Scotland do about this, given we are devolved and in charge of our own health service? In Devolved Wales, their FM announced this week they will complete their vaccination process six weeks ahead of schedule, with all those aged 18 to have been given an appointment before next Monday. This is impressive. Mark Drakeford has steered a steady ship throughout the pandemic, taking bespoke decisions and tailored lockdowns to tackle the spread of the virus. His government's motto is that nobody, no one should be left behind. And what's great is that rather than this being just another slogan parroted by politicians, they have actually achieved this in reality. Now Wales can boast one of the best vaccination programmes in the world. Scotland has followed a similar bespoke programme, so why are we not at the same stage? Given that Wales has around 2 million fewer people in Scotland, they are an advantage in terms of manageable numbers. But this can't be the only reason. The army has now got involved to speed up the vaccination process here, but Scotland still lags on jags. There have been delays at vaccination centres in Lothian, with reports of a combination of long queues and staff shortages leading to chaotic scenes last month. There is much more than a suspicion that the much-reported no-shows at the big vac centres in Glasgow and Aberdeen of a couple of weeks were not in fact evidence of vaccine resistance, but of a breakdown in the not notification system.
Given the question mark over single versus double dose effectiveness against this virus and concerns over the growing spread of the Delta variant, it's imperative that Scotland accelerates the process so we too don't leave anyone behind. At present, people aged 30 and over can get the vaccine, with Glaswegians aged 18 and above able to get a first dose due to the longer restrictions and increased infection rate in that area. In England, they're at the 25 and over stage, and 18-year-olds and above in Northern Ireland. To be fair, all of these numbers are well above average in international terms, but not, it should be noted, in historical ones. Back during the dark days of the war, the Scottish public health system vaccinated the whole of Glasgow against smallpox in a few days, and guess what? I didn't have a single computer to help, just boots on the ground and jags in the arm. However, with 76% of the adult population having received their first dose so far, the Scottish Government should at least hit their target of everyone over 18 having a single vaccination by the end of July. But it is simply not quick enough nor sufficient on its own. Given fears over the new variant from Nepal, the question of border control remains. Since we are yet to find out how effective the vaccines will be on the new variants, it seems incredible just to focus on the vaccination programme without full border protection. This is something none of the constituent nations of the UK has really tackled so far. While Johnson prances on the global stage of the G7 in Cornwall this weekend, we should remember what an empty charlatan the man is. Trump without the Twitter account. Perhaps the devolved nations need to finally take the initiative on borders. After all, it's not hard to be Boris on delivery. That article was by Tasmina Ahmed Sikh. Recorded from the National on the 10th of June 2021. From the Culture section. Mural celebrates Scottish King of the Mountains cycling legend by Gregor Young. An inspirational tribute to a Scottish cycling legend has been officially unveiled. A huge mural of Robert Miller has been painted on the gable end of a building owned by Campsie Golf Club at Crow Road, Lennoxton, at the gateway to the Campsie Fells by Scottish artist Rogue Owner, a.k.a. Bobby McNamara. Miller was crowned King of the Mountains in the 1984 Tour de France, the first time a British rider has won a major tour classification. He finished second in the 1987 Giro d'Italia, again being named King of the Mountains. Miller's incredible stamina and skills were honed with training rides in the challenging splendour of the Campsies. His historic achievements of the inspirational athlete, unsurpassed for decades, have now been immortalised thanks to a project funded by Eastern Bartonshire Council and closely involving Philippa York, who previously competed as Robert Miller. York's incredible journey extends well beyond cycling success. She is a successful Scottish journalist, writer and trailblazer. She said, I love it. It's a really striking piece of work and full credit to Rogue Owner for capturing the essence of the moment. When, when I wanted an extra hard finish to a training ride, that did include a visit to the Campsies and a climb of the Crow Road before heading back into Glasgow. So for the mural to be placed at the foot of the climb is rather fitting. I think, or at least hope, people will see it as inspirational. Cycling be can be for pleasure, fitness, travel or sporting competition, but the important message is that it is accessible to everyone. Owner's portfolio includes a number of stunning murals throughout Glasgow. The idea for the project came from Drew Wilson, owner of Visual Bike Fit, himself a successful cyclist who represented Scotland at three Commonwealth Games. 
Campsie Community Council and Eastern Berkshire Leisure and Culture Trust have also been involved, and the mural has been well received. It is based on a photograph by Graham Watson. That article was by Gregor Young. From the National, date Thursday the 10th of June 2021, from the sports section, Ange Postecoglou confirmed as new Celtic manager. Hoops are one of the names in world football. By Mark Hendry, sports writer. Celtic have confirmed Ange Postecoglou as their new manager. The Greek-born Australian coach leaves Yokohama F. Marinos for Parkhead on a 12-month rolling contract. The former Australia boss revealed his delight at finally getting the deal over the line to replace Neil Lennon after more than 100 days. The opportunity that has been given to me is one of the greatest honours in football and the responsibility to lead our magnificent football club into the future is one that I will cherish dearly, he told the club website. Celtic is one of THE names in world football, of that there is no doubt. A giant of a club, a proper footballing institution and so much more. Real history, real substance, real authenticity and real soul. I know Celtic is a true way of life for so many people and I know the demands which come with this position. I'm ready to do all I can to meet those demands. I will be doing everything I can to get our great club back on top and, at the same time, deliver the kind of football which our fans appreciate. We want to entertain our fans and we want to win. These are the objectives which I always set myself and which I now begin to work on. When you think of Celtic, you think of supporters. And my dream is to see our fans back at Celtic Park with us as soon as possible. We all hope things are changing for the better and can see our fans soon as they are vital to everything I want to do. We need our supporters back by our side and I can't wait to be with them by back in a packed paradise. I have already had great discussions with Peter Dom and the board about their, their ideas and strategy for the future of the club. I know the club's new modern vision aligns very much with mine and we now look to go and deliver in this. In everything we do, we aim to give our fans a successful team of real quality, which they're excited about and can be proud of. We have already begun to work on our plans for adding to the squad. We aim to bring players of quality to Celtic and to enhance the existing core of great talent. I very much look forward to meeting with the players on the return from the close season break and I can't wait to get started as Celtic manager. And that article was by Mark Hendry. From the National, Thursday the 10th of June 2021, from the sports section. Rangers director John Bennett makes old firm Caribou Cup pitch as he eyes English silverware route. Article by Christopher Jack, senior Rangers writer. Rangers Deputy Chairman John Bennett reckons Scotland's top four clubs should be invited to join the English League Cup in the coming years. The idea of a cross-border cup competition has been raised and dismissed numerous times over recent seasons, but Bennett believes there is real value in the proposal. The blueprint could see Rangers and Celtic joined in the Caribou Cup by two other Premiership sides, but any plan will need the backing of football league clubs. Bennett told the Price of Football podcast, 
I think the Caribou Cup would be interesting for the old firm to be invited to, but also to participate, because I think of the colour, the fans, the excitement that it would bring. And I actually think the attraction it would bring to the broadcasters. I'm not sure if it's limited to the old firm. Could it be an invitation that's extended to, say, the top four clubs in any given season in the Scottish Premiership? I think that's something we should explore. I'm keen to explore. And I think it's something that English Football League should be keen to explore. Forecasting is always a dangerous game, but I'll give you this forecast. We would sell out our away allocation, no problem. And that article is by Christopher Jack. And that was this week's The National Podcast, formerly recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.